0: we are live.
1: Welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. This is the second webinar, actually more like a conversation of our January 2016 series titled uh, Design, Making, Learning, Why and How. That's that's tonight. The whole series is about uh, Maker Ed. Um, it was organized by me. I'm Howard Rheingold you can find out all about me at, uh, at reingold.com. I was given the opportunity to host a, a series in January and I immediately thought about Maker Ed. It's something that's, that's uh, very interesting to me and we have some all-stars here. Um, I will host um, all of the remaining uh, webinars in the four-part series and, and we're focusing on Maker Educators all over the place in schools, libraries, and after-school programs. Uh, people who are awakening and feeding an interest in dis- discovering invention and hands-on learning and design through new tools and practices. If you're watching this right now, please take a moment to share it with your networks. It will be recorded for later. Um, today we're talking with A. J. Malmaguer. Uh, Lisa Brahms, Sherry Shee, Kylie Pepler, and oops, that's the wrong cl- That's the wrong one. Um, we are talking with a different group. We're all going to introduce ourselves. Um, uh, we're going to get, we're going to talk today about design and making and learning. Uh, design having a lot to do with the why and a lot of making have, having to do with the how. So, um, maker educators uh, in schools, libraries, and after-school programs, we've got a little bit of each today. Um, before we dive into our chat, a couple of quick details. To those who are watching live right now, we welcome comments and questions through either the Twitter hashtag connected learning or the Q&A feature that you should see within the video player. We'll we'll do our best to address questions during this hangout, and the webinar is also being co-streamed at the National Writer Project's Educator So um, before we get, begin, let's give everybody a chance to introduce themselves. So um, let's let's get Get started over here. What about Krista? Why don't we start with you, and then we'll work our way across the the screen.
2: Great, thank you, Howard. Uh, I work at the Hillbrook School. It's a private school in Las Vegas, California. We're K through eight, and I was hired as a science teacher in two thousand and eleven. And I've been using design in the context of a science class for the last four years. And I've learned a lot, and I'm really excited to discuss this topic.
1: All right, thank you, Krista. Denise.
0: Hi, I'm Denise. Um, I'm an AmeriCorps VISTA member who's serving in the Teen Education and Creation Hub at the Billings Public Library. So um, most of my work is focused on um, mentor coordination with our college students who work as mentors in the lab. And um, yeah, so uh, Cody will probably, he's the Tech Lab librarian, he'll be able to talk more about the Teen Tech Lab.
1: Thank you. Ian, would you like to introduce yourself?
3: Yeah. Hi, yeah, I'm Ian. Uh, Ian Goncher. I uh, teach in engineering school at Brown University. Um, my background is in design, but I'm uh, interested in creative process and creative practice across different disciplines. And um, making, prototyping, designing—all these—all these kinds of things definitely come in into play.
1: And uh, thank you, Ian, and Cody.
4: Yeah, hi, I'm Cody Allen. I'm the teen librarian at the Billings Public Library in the Tech Lab, like Denise said, which is in Billings, Montana. So the Tech Lab is a teen-only space. It's a digital learning lab. It's part of the National U Media Network of Learning Labs. Um, So it's just a space that teens can come in after school and explore. We have all kinds of great technology, and they can come in and hang out and explore and make stuff and kind of explore whatever their interests are. Okay. And yeah, and I've, I guess I should I'm fairly new too. I've only been here since, since September so. It's a new, uh, really exciting time and process for me.
1: Okay, great. Uh, let's go wherever we want to go with us, There's, there's no strict structure. But a, a good question, I think, to, to start with is how can we add to the conversation about making, which emphasizes how questions, shift to a, a conversation about design? Which engages both the how and the why. The why being focused around the, the needs of, of people. Somebody want to jump in with that and start.
3: Um, I can just kind of jump in a little bit here. Um, yeah. So, um, I I, I I'm interested a little bit in hearing what other people have to think have to say about. Um, kind of breaking it down into these two categories, you know, thinking about making, and making could include prototyping, uh, physically actualizing an idea, taking the concept and making it concrete, and this idea of design which presumably begins with human needs and begins with a kind of um, maybe a more traditional design process. Another way to think about this perhaps, um, and I don't, we can kind of go wherever the conversation will will take us. is thinking about kind of how we direct our creative process. Are we, are we um, in a kind of mode of ideation and exploring and trying and not really kind of certain what we're going to create? Or is there a kind of specific goal that we're, we're, we're moving towards? And I think that um, this kind of dichotomy maybe between the maker and the designer kind of um, can somehow help us ask that question in a different way. Um, there's a lot in there, so kind of, I, I don't know, uh, feel free to tease out whatever you guys think is interesting. Um.
2: I like to think about um, the sort of making and design on sort of a spectrum. Um, I think that you can have making occurring on any level, you know, whether you give kids sort of a strict set of instructions and they're just learning manual dexterity, they're learning how assembly works, um, uh, three-dimensional, like, spatial reasoning. And then there's sort of the open-ended question of, like, noticing things in the environment. And I see design as bringing to the table not just sort of hands-on skills, how to use tools, how to understand the properties of materials, but how to look at the world differently, to see the layers and the complexity of the world. Um, So for me, design is very much a mindset. Um, And when you have kids sort of begin to just invent from scratch, it's usually motivated around something, right? It's usually an emotional kind of impetus, whether it's to solve a problem or to to make something for themselves, make something for their family. And so there's this emotional component and storytelling component that design brings to the table that I think is really, really valuable. They're both valuable, both spectrums, but being able to navigate through that, it can be um, something that schools can think about.
4: Yeah, I was going to say, oh, sorry. Um, I like how Krista talked about it as a spectrum. I I think... um, these are two interesting ways of thinking about kind of how we engage teens and how we get them like, making things. And I think, if you think about it as a spectrum, like Christian uh, was saying, it's kind of like anywhere in that spectrum is going to be a place where the teen's going to maybe they aren't really interested in design, maybe they're interested in, in the actual making process, maybe they're interested in design instead of making. I mean, there's, there's so many different ways you can parse that out. I think it's a good way of talking about it because um, they're so deeply related. You know, obviously, you can do design and making. They don't have to come apart, but um, I think it's a really good way of thinking about how do we get teens interested It's that there's somewhere some, somewhere in there they're gonna be there's going to be something that they
1: want to learn about. Okay. I, th- I think this is a great way to, to frame it. It's, it's still... We're, we're still really talking a little bit on the theory side Um, Denise or or anybody, um, what about a a concrete example of how you're going to get a young person, you know teens would be included in that, thinking about what it is they want to do and and why to to lead into the how to do it part. Yeah,
0: I mean actually I was just about to bring up um, an example with um, 3D printing, that's something where you know, it can be a very passive activity. You're watching this really cool you know, this machine make stuff um, in front of you, which is awesome. But it is, you know, you're just sort of watching that happen. And where the really fun part is for, for teens is we push them not to just find a file online and download it and then print something. You know, we, we get them started with like Tinkercat, which is an online um, software we use to design 3D objects. Um, and the the cool thing about Tinkercad is that it's very basic, and you know I didn't really have a background in 3D printing before I started this position. It was kind of learn on the job. So with Tinkercad, um, <clears throat> really what you do when you're learning from the basics is you're putting uh, shapes together. You're putting you know blocks and circles and spheres. And so the way that works is you're you're breaking down objects that you that you notice every day, um, like a camera. A camera is if if you're going for an old school camera, then you've got you've got the body, which is a block. You've got um, the lens, which is you know half sphere, that kind of thing. So you're really by design. You know when you're wanting to make this thing, you're really looking at design and breaking it down into concrete parts, and then you're building it back up again. You know with with this software. So you're it's it's a really interesting way to learn about design. Is um, Through these new technologies, and that's something that we're really pushing the teens to to explore and to do more with it. So they're being they're able to create you know these these objects that they want, Um, and that's been a very cool thing to watch in the lab.
1: Well, uh, 3D printers and 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 laser cutters. We've got uh, some some great uh, now uh, affordable technologies for fabrication. a a good question I think to go from there is how can we encourage students to be fluent both in strategies for fabrication as Denise was talking about and in strategies of of craft which we I think traditionally associate with getting your hands on it so perhaps we're at a moment where we're there's a lot of attraction to 3D printing and and laser cutting, Um, how how really um, there, there's probably some hands-on prototyping involved in that uh, design process before you you cut the the, the machine loose. Uh, the the part where you work with your hands and uh, enjoyed making a concrete prototype from an idea on on the way to making something you know more permanent. Um, it's really about thinking about the things we make. What um, I know, Ian, I know that you go through this process with college students and, we, and we've got a great uh, spectrum here. We've, we've, we've got after school programs that I think probably include younger children and you've got the teen uh, programs. Uh, how, how do you go about that craft and fabrication, weaving those together?
3: Um, yeah, so, um, I, I'll just talk in in my case. Um, Well, I I think it's also about thinking about a kind of broader sense of uh, what we call literacies. You know, there's uh, visual literacies, digital literacies, um, more tools in the toolbox, so to speak. And I think that knowing how to draw and to be able to kind of articulate something that's in your head and get it onto a piece of paper is just as important as being able to uh, make something in a virtual environment and be able to 3D print it. And I think where the really interesting kind of moments start to come about is where, where students start to learn how to kind of tie these things together, how to take a drawing, something um, that, as, um, as uh, Krista has as mentioned, you know, kind of from their experience and kind of trying to translate it into an idea that's a little bit more concrete, that's a drawing on the page, and maybe that gets translated into a CAD model, maybe in Tinkercad, maybe, you know, in Rhino or SolidWorks, that gets 3D printed, it, gets, it evolves, it changes. Um, I think that that process, and it's not a kind of linear process, um, is really important. Um, Added to that, I think that there's this other component that sometimes falls by the wayside of of just Engaging materials and really trying to learn how materials work, what their limitations, what the constraints are, uh, what their possibilities are. Um, you know, like for example, you know, um, kind of the classic design project is, you know, using cardboard, you know, to kind of make some kind of structure. And you know, you get to learn about how how to get it to stand up, how it can support other weight. Think about how it works within tension and compression. You start to think about how it reads as a kind of uh, visual material, um, the kind of context it fits into. And I think all this kind of this the direct kind of contact with the materials with the hand so to speak is is really crucial to kind of developing that part of the maker designers brain um, But I'd be interested to hear what other people think about that
2: Yeah, I would definitely add that it's important to add that step sort of as a requirement um, where they go from paper to to cutting things with their hands whether with a box cutter or scissors and using really simple materials that are very cheap and very disposable to sort of work out any kind of initial problems. I think what's really great about the higher-end technologies is that the end product is so professional-looking that it really bridges for kids this, like, the gap between sort of the the, the craftsy kind of, like, hot glue mess that often goes home with something that they can actually envision selling on Etsy. You know, so I think that that's sort of, like... another way and the mathematics involved in that of course is really great but there's really nothing that difficult once you sit down in front of the laser cutter and and have it draw out a box for you and then the laser cutter cuts that little box and then you assemble something whereas if you're making a model by hand you're really interacting with the materials in a way you know that gets you to understand their their constraints and and gets them to take part in that process. And and I would just also add I think that's
3: great I think um, that it, having students kind of embrace kind of the messiness of the low resolution prototype is just as important as taking satisfaction in the kind of high resolution Etsy ready kind of prototype and I think thinking about these things iteratively and thinking about kind of how they are able to kind of um, put together a process that kind of works for what they want to create um, I think is, is really important as well.
1: So, uh, for example, what, what do they want to create? Um, what, what, Cody, what, what do teens get excited about uh, to start the process? I mean, what's the thing they want to do that leads them to making a prototype and then maybe fabricating or, or otherwise making it? Oh, you need to unmute.
4: Sorry, was that for me? My audio just came back on, so I just. Oh, yeah,
1: oh yes, Cody. I was just asking since since you were the team coordinator, and we were talking about this process of getting your hands on and moving from idea to paper to maybe a cardboard or some other kind of hands-on prototype. You know, maybe at, on your way to making something out of wood or other material, but maybe also to direct fabrication through a a laser cutter or a 3D printer, back to the to the why. What is it that you have found teens to get excited about doing that will lead them into that kind of process?
4: Yeah, so, I mean, the, the teens, and again, it, in our lab, is just for teens. That's kind of my offhand comment for um, everyone. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we, we really do hone in on, like, the hands-on aspect you're talking about. We want them in doing stuff and tinkering around and finding things on their own. Um, and that's kind of the the general idea is what are these teens interested in on their own? Um, you know, they go to school every day and they have curriculum that they have to follow, and then they come to the lab. and Our idea is that um, maybe they saw, or maybe they learn about something really cool in school that they only touched on, they want to learn more about, um, or maybe they have some things that they can't learn about in school due to some technology restraints or material restraints um, that hopefully we can provide. So for us, it's really about. Just what are they interested in, what are they passionate about, and then how can we, like you said, you know, make that happen for them Get them, get them uh, making things and moving from that, you know, from making the design and everything like that. Um, and a big part of that too is, I think, bringing in local professionals, which we've done a few times, to really, you know, a good example of going back to 3D design was we had some local architects come in and talk to the kids about designing buildings and how to do that in, in uh, these 3D design programs and they gave a really good overview of kind of like why they do these things and how they go about it and what kind of things they have to think about when they're making a building um, which was great, like the kids were interested in it and they really loved it and uh, I think it was a good experience but like I said it's, it's just finding that that passion for them and kind of uh, matching it up with someone who knows a lot about it.
1: Well uh, after, they've, after they've become um, activated by somebody talking about how they go about making a building what what can and what what do teenagers want want to make themselves? I mean, I imagine they're not going to make a building. What what do they get started with? I don't know. Maybe uh, Krista, yeah. Denise.
0: Oh, I, I was going to jump in real quick um, okay, for that. Ahead. I know. Um, a lot of the things they do that they want to make are, are functional, um, you know, they want to make um, a holder to put on the wall for their Xbox control. They want to build a phone case, you know, that kind of thing. So the, the things that they're um, they're making are things that they could buy, but, you know, they're, they're creating objects that are more meaningful to them because they're the ones uh, who are the makers of it. And they're the designers as well, and I think um, that has a lot of importance for them, too, that, they are the ones who are creating instead of just consuming, and that's, um, you know, that's a pretty interesting, almost, you know, kind of a new thing for teens maybe to have this, this um, empowerment, you know, because they're learning these these technologies and now they're able to do something with them as well. So yeah, for teens, I think that's that's all the thing. you they get to show off you know, something they made and it's functional too. So people say, where would you get that phone case? Well, I made it in the tech lab. <laughs> like, I don't know how many people get to say that. It's a lot of fun.
1: Well, One, one of the things I like uh, a lot about MakerEd is the sense of agency. And you know, to me, it goes back to Ivan Elik talked about convivial tools. We, we live in a world in which everything we're surrounded by is, is made in some factory Somewhere, and and even the the tools we use are things that we can't really manufacture ourselves. And I think just making a you're not going to make your phone. Um, well, maybe you could with a Raspberry Pi, but but you can make a phone case. And and I think you need to see that it's not just about making it for yourself instead of buying it. It's that it's Instilling the sense that you can actually have some agency in in this built world that so much so much is seems to be out of your hands.
3: I almost feel like that there's 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 somewhat of a oh, sorry <laughs> um, that there's somewhat of a gap there though sometimes that you know sometimes the things that kind of get um, that are part of the let's call it the maker movement, you know, aren't so practical. That there's a really, there, it's a great practice of making things, but in terms of trying to fit them into kind of everybody, every everyday behaviors and really kind of critically engaging that is sometimes missing. Like for example, uh, Denise's example of the, um, the wall for the PlayStation, you know, it, I'd be curious to hear if they, if they change the design? Did they think about the experience of playing the game? Did they experience, did they think about kind of how it got used and try to use their own experience to kind of adapt the design and change it? Or was it just kind of downloading something from Thingiverse and, and 3D printing it? And I think that, I think this really gets to that question that we start off with about kind of the relationship between making and design, uh, maybe the how and the why, and kind of maybe trying to engage students on on both those levels. I do think it, it's a spectrum as has as been pointed out. Um, but I'd be interested to hear what other people have to say about
4: that. Yeah, I know. I think I think that's right. Um, like we said earlier, with with the 3D design going back, just running with that example, you know, we do try to push the kids towards ground up 3D design, which, you know, I think by the, by the very nature will make them think about design choices. You know, like in this this controller wall mounted controller example, um, he's going to have to think about what kind of wall, like how's it going to fit on the wall, like how is it going to fit the controllers, how the controllers going to hang, things that um, you know, like it, you may actually have to tease out and point out to them that they're actually doing, um, because they may take it for granted because it's just part of the process. Um, but you want to really make that clear. No, like this is this is kind of engineering in a way, right? I mean, you're you're teasing out these very um, relevant characteristics and issues um, that you need to think about when designing. Um, so yeah, I, I think it is. I think it's good that we do that. And like you know, like I said earlier, we we try to try not to just make let the kids download a file and print it because that's not difficult and. Um, It may be novel to watch the 3D printer work, but um, it's more fulfilling and, I think, more engaging to do it yourself.
2: One of the best parts of my job, um, besides teaching, is that I also get to manage our makerspace, which you see behind us. And so I get to watch kids sort of um, act on that agency all the time. We're also really fortunate to have multiple makerspaces on our campus. We had a really strong fine arts program um, before we developed sort of the, the makerspace. And so the kids have a lot of um, freedom to come into these spaces during their recess time, and that's when you see sort of like what it is that kids want to make. And a large chunk of middle schoolers really love to build ballistics. They like to, you know, bow and arrows are really exciting, and um, air-powered uh, air pressure, you know, projectiles at some time. And that happens a lot here. 3D printing happens a lot here. But if you go into our other art spaces, we actually have like a little small creek on our campus. And I can... I can't count on my hand how many days that there were kids out on that creek testing boats that they've made, you know, from hot-gluing styrofoam things together. They just love to test these boats in our little creek and uh, or just make art in their free time. So there's, they just love to tinker and, and test sort of the physics of things, and that's, that's been really, really sweet
1: to watch. Would you make a distinction between tinkering and, and design?
2: Yeah, I think one is um, accessible to all. You know, it's full of mistakes and discoveries. Um, whereas I think with design, it's more linked to the engineering world, where you have to be a little bit more methodical, um, sketching things out, knowing what your plans are in advance, knowing what your measurements are. Whereas you can, you can take a toy apart and then pack out its motor or its voice box and then discover something um, in those components by reconfiguring them. I think that you don't necessarily have to have a plan for tinkering to exist. It's open to more people. I,
1: and I think that that's a kind of messy learning that is uh, sort of absent from a lot of the classroom learning. Everything, there's a reason for everything and there's a plan for everything and
2: yeah, tinkering, tinkering is is playing, right? It's play. It's definitely absent from school. <laughs> I,
3: I think this nicely sets up, you know, so the, this distinction we sometimes talk about is the difference between the bricoleur and the uh, the engineer, right? The the Levi Strauss uh, distinction. You know, the bricoleur is somebody that is the tinker, is the, the MacGyver, the somebody that that finds kind of the things in the environment and makes them meaningful. And the engineer is is somebody that is. Um, has a kind of complete set of what they need, and they create the parts it, that they, they need for a particular task. And I think that it's really crucial to, to think in both ways, and and I think tinkers need to think about drawing and planning things out and kind of co- and constructing and thinking about how they're going to construct something, and I think what we might call engineers need to think more about kind of this, this process of play, this kind of process of kind of of investigating kind of the materials at hand and letting them speak to them and being able to respond to them. And I think, it's once again, it's it's two sides of a, of a spectrum that I think it's really important to Understand that the, the the full breadth of.
2: And most engineers do both, right? Like they will sit down and draw plans and make measurements and and plan what materials they and go and buy them. And but they'll also just play. I think that's that's how they probably became. Engineers. I,
3: I guess I'm trying to hint at a, maybe a um a little bit of a critique of the maker movement <laughs> or a critique of this idea of making. You know that maybe it's not rigorous enough. Maybe it doesn't it doesn't bring in enough of these kinds of. I, I don't prefer this term, but these kind of engineering kind of principles. Um, but we're still maintain this kind of this this kind of play, this kind of tinkering. I think I think um, it doesn't have to be one or the other, obviously.
1: So what What about these uh, the the engineering side and the and and the bricolage side in the context of a small team? I, I uh, work with a a group of people who um, make things, and I am very much the brick I I like to throw the stuff on a table and and mess with it. And we we've got another person on the team who's very much an engineer, and he doesn't like to do things until he's got a spec and a a drawing. And and kind of uh, the the creative conflict causes us to try to seek that that space. Where it works for all of us, um, I guess I've I've have become more of an engineer, and the engineer has become more of a allure, But in a in a small team, sometimes it's uh, it's a matter of acknowledging, uh, okay, we've we've got to agree on this, and these are different approaches. How are we gonna How are we gonna do it? Do you do you work with with teams of uh, Designers, makers, and 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 come up with the, uh, come up against this kind of dynamic. Anybody? Okay, maybe not so much. Um, I, I I know I do, um, but
3: I'd be interested to hear what uh, what other people run into. I think that you have uh, a diverse diverse group of creative um, practices, and I think that that's always a good thing. But I'd be interested to hear what other other people have to say.
4: Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, in the public library we run into all different kinds of people all the time. Um, so we definitely get all kinds of personalities, especially when it comes to learning. <clears throat> you know, like yesterday we were doing um, a, a fuel cell engineering challenge for these kids. Where we were building these old cars that ran off fuel cells. And you know separates the hydrogen from the oxygen um, in the, from water. And uh, you could definitely tell, like, some of the kids were a lot more fine-grained about, like, you know, reading through... The instructions and like making sure they you do everything you know, step by step and, and getting it really efficient. And some kids were more like, you know, let's just try this out. You know, let's just see what happens when we design it this way. When we put this tube over here, um, and we had them all paired up. And I think it was an interesting dynamic. Where we, you know, some of those groups were kind of the polemical opposites of each other, but they worked really well together. So I think you know, like we've been hinting at, been saying, it's it's two sides of the same coin. That's really really important. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I see it. I see it a lot in the library, too. So,
2: I, I think you can foster both. You know, um, Adam Sad- Savage is, like, famous for saying it's just screwing around unless you write it down. Um, so really good research does require that kind of the rigor that we kind of see in engineering. Um, but I think that uh, if we really want to, one, engage and kind of foster more of a constructivist approach where they, they figure it out on their own and, there's so much joy in that, right, where you discover something for your, for yourself. There's an ownership there that we need to value. So structuring lessons or activities uh, for learners in a way where, you know, we give them prompts that kind of leads them in a certain direction and has certain expectations around documentation is, is important. But then also building into that sort of like, I don't know, let's find out, you know, and letting that exploration kind of run free and, and letting them be comfortable in both spaces. And as you were saying, different learners are going to have different styles so they can help, they can show their strengths in one, you know, and be mentors in one, and then those roles can be flipped.
1: What about the uh, the access to the rest of the world that uh, network uh, that network social media uh, enable? How how can uh, project documentation, critical reflection, and and sharing projects through social media help students give their projects greater meaning and, and, and relevance. Um, can, do, does anybody have experience with engaging with others outside the classroom, um, giving uh, greater relevance to, to students or connecting to the community? that any of you do do that?
2: We are middle school, so we don't use the social media, but we definitely connect, and
4: I'll wait until you finish. Yeah, we've <clears throat> we've done it a few times in the past, but that's actually something where um, here in Billings, the tech library, we really want to work on more is kind of this, this notion of showcasing um, teen work, um, getting out in, in, into the community, into the world at large. But, yeah, I mean, like, over the summer we had a teen come in. We had this three-part um, movie filmmaking uh, program that we did and uh, one of the teens was really really interested in it and she actually um, interviewed the architect who designed our building. We're in a, a two-year-old, you know, somewhat new, bu- somewhat brand new building. Um, so he was in town and she interviewed him and edited it and you know we put it we put it up on YouTube and we're going to put it up on the uh, the library webpage. Um, so yeah, I mean it is a concerted effort. We, we, we don't just want people to make things and you know, take them home, which is great. We want them to make things and be proud of them and to show other people. Um, and I think that's a big part of it.
1: So that relationship to community, how have how people in, in Billings reacted to, to what, what they've seen that, that you're doing?
4: It's, it's been really positive. Um, they're, really, they're really on board with kind of what, the, what we're doing here with the tech lab, the tech we have, um, what we're doing for the teens. It is it is nice. I mean, they, they talk about how, oh, I wish we had this when I was young. Or, it's so incredible. It's so good that you're doing these things for the kids, like getting them these kinds of avenues of learning, These these this access to this technology that's um, so hard to find, especially like on your own. Like these are things kids want to be able to afford on their own or, you know, don't have at school. Um, so, yeah, the community has been been really behind us, which has been great.
1: Do, do any of you do uh, showcases where your, your, your students and your, your makers open up to the community, and, and, and how, how does that go? What, what, what kind of, uh, how do you set that up, and what kind of uh, feedback do you get?
2: This is like one of my favorite parts. Um, Maker fair is an obvious example. I don't know if you guys all have access to Maker fairs in your communities, but we started attending Maker fair in um, 2013. And it was a huge, huge deal for the kids to have that big of an audience. Um, But it doesn't have to be that big. That can be a little bit overwhelming. So we actually do it on a small scale as well. Whenever we end a unit and they have some project, you know, it could be on one side of failure to, like, wow, that's really impressive. Whatever it is, they always have a story to share. So they set up little booths and we invite the entire school and we'll get second graders coming in and looking at fifth graders and fifth graders sharing the work and we'll have adults, like, seeing what a fifth-grader is doing and, and getting really impressed with that as well. Um, I think an, what's valuable about the social networking um, sharing of work, you know, our kids, some of them have Instagram, and they're sharing their drawings, you know. They're sharing things they're making on Instagram, and I think what's great about the social networking is that you can tap directly into an audience that really values what you value, right? You have an audience that's looking at art with you, or you, you're looking at an audience on, you know, that really loves Maker art. You have this community that we can all... You know, consolidate our, our values around. Um, so there's those are two different levels of sharing, like sharing at large with people who know nothing about what you're doing, um, and sharing with communities who share those values.
3: Yeah, I, I think that the the community aspect of it is crucial, as has been pointed out. Um, at the college level, I, I'm actually surprised. What I'm actually surprised that the universities haven't embraced social media more than they have. Um, it's so much of what we learn, and so much of kind of how we form opinions and how we how we think about the world, is 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 shaped by social media nowadays. All the things we share are opportunities that we learn from one another, and I think that it's it seems to me a, a missed opportunity to some degree to. Um, to not participate in that with students. Um, last or two summers ago, we did a uh, STEAM Studio course um, that was kind of based on this idea, where uh, we had students that were that came to Brown for the pre-college program, did the course here, but worked with students that were distance learners that didn't that didn't actually come to campus. And we we ran it through Facebook and Tumblr. We used uh, native social media, the the social media that they were already participating in, and I think that it was exciting for a lot of reasons, but Primarily, it, it it kind of um, it kind of disrupted this idea of a, of a classroom having walls and kind of having a fixed uh, time. You know, it's like the, these conversations are still going on. You know, two years later between the, the between the people that were in these classes, some of whom never met one another. And I think that um, being able to share one's work is ultimately it, it gets that kind of intrinsic motivation that's so crucial to kind of um, getting students to really. Um, Internalize some of the things that we're talking about here. I think um, more so than grades, more so than you know, trying to um, to make the teacher happy. I think that it's when you can make your when you can create something of value that your peers respect. Um, that's that's pretty addictive, and I think that um, social media is a great tool for, for
1: doing that. Denise, do you want to jump in on on any of this? Any any other things we've been saying?
0: I mean, yeah, Ruth really has got some great thoughts. So, um, I mean, that's kind of what connected learning is all about, right, is connecting these um, these pursuits, you know, your individual pursuits and sharing them with others, with your peers. Um, and, yeah, that's something that I would like to see a lot more. Or well, I'd like to see the teens get into that, you know, not just their little individual spheres in the lab, but actually coming together and working together, um, sharing what they're doing with each other, the as Cody was saying, that fuel cell challenge um, that we did yesterday, that was um, I guess maybe a little bit of a departure from what we were doing. It was very educational, um, you know, step-by-step directions. You have all the parts with you and you're building them. Um, whereas, you know, normally when we just have open hour hangout hours, um, we've got all this equipment and kids kind of just gravitate towards what they gravitate towards. Um, and they're free to mess around with it. And um, definitely, you know, as we are talking about before with the sort of the difference between the engineering versus the tinkering, um, it has been, that that was a good example of, um, you know, forcing these kind of questions, you know, step by step, thinking about what, um, I guess, the outcome is going to be if you make these choices. That's something that, um, you know, I guess those are just kind of the lessons that are interesting to see in the tech lab as we, as we you know, keep moving forward relatively new space. So we're still kind of piecing out all these different um, learning philosophies and different ways of trying to do things in the tech lab.
1: I think in particular, one of the advantages of, of Maker Ed is that you don't really have the inertia of the university in regard to sharing what you're doing via social media. um, You know the universities are not accustomed to the students who took this course last year and the year before participating with the ones who are taking the course now or the students in in this classroom sharing what they're doing with a a classroom on the other side of the country or the, the you know other side of the world but when you begin Uh, trying to figure out how to do things online you find that there are people all over who are doing things that you're trying to do and you kind of you you learn from them and you kind of want to show off to them and I I think that the the potential for connected learning in in the sense of the connection between people through different institutional boundaries is it's kind of a starting afresh, You don't have a lot of the baggage that the traditional classroom has. That's my opinion. I don't know. What do you think?
4: Yeah, I mean I think um, connected learning just that connected part can mean a lot of different things. Sometimes it just means connected learning in the sense of kids learning things in school and then learning them outside of school however that happens. Um, I really do like this idea of connected learning in the sense of just people to people learning and sharing and teaching. Um, you know, kind of like what you were saying earlier, it's it's really easy these days to just jump on YouTube and YouTube a video of how to do something. You know, like, how do I fix a bike tire? Um, like, the information and technology in some ways is so ubiquitous now that it's, it's so, so easy to do that it's actually a lot easier to find these communities and the, to find these people who share these interests with you. And it's, I think it's such a rewarding experience because you not only um, expand your own wealth of knowledge so much, but you meet these people that are like, willing to help you, which I think is what's so incredible. Um, again, I think, I think fostering that those kinds of relationships is, is just key. Like, you just learn so much more, and I think you learn a little bit better because um, it's just so, more, so much more meaningful and fun for you. Um, yeah, I think it's really important.
3: I, I also think that it's kind of an extension of this one-room schoolhouse idea, although it's a really big schoolhouse now. You know, this kind of vertical um integration between you know uh, high school students and K through 5 and college students and even lifelong learners people people like Howard who you know who engage people at all these at all these different levels and i think that's a really important shift and I'm not sure that it's been fully uh, tapped into in terms of the resources of you know people in, with different expertise in different institutions even at different levels of their learning and different points of their lives talking to one another uh, just a quick example of this is that um, we've been we've been running the steam group and um, it's been wonderful to see the students work with some local schools and teaching um, you know fifth graders how to Put circuits together, and how to how to think about design, how to think about making, and it's good on both sides because it's good for the students, the the, the fifth graders, for example, um, who obviously benefit from the expertise of college students. And you know, let's face it, it's really cool to have a college student pay attention to you and, and think your ideas are important. And it's also really good for the college students because they they're able to kind of demonstrate a certain mastery of the material and. Um, in doing so, there's there's a kind of I mean we all all of us are teachers you know we we understand that there's a kind of excitement and a kind of intrinsic motivation in sharing what you know with other people and I think what's different what technology makes more available now I think is it's kind of it's a two-way street it can be reciprocated now that we all can learn from one another and that these kind of traditional hierarchies of student and teacher and you know different kinds of institutions and, and distinctions within those institutions can be challenged and, and even broken down to some degree and I, I find that to be very exciting
2: it's super exciting I think that one of the um, my first mistakes teaching in this method was um, not learning how all these technologies worked, you know. <laughs> like I, I was a science teacher. I didn't know anything about Arduinos and 3D printing like it was very foreign to me and I couldn't pick it up as quickly as children could, right? And they're they're supposed to be entry level tools. And so it immediately became sort of like my default to say, well, you know, Bill over there already figured it out, so you should definitely go ask him how to how to figure this out. And then it became like, oh wait, that's just so much better than them having to wait for me. I should never be the portal of them being able to have access to anything, any kind of knowledge. So, it felt like I was teaching poorly. I felt like a bad teacher. And then I realized, like, oh wait a minute, this is actually very superior. And so, we just refer to it now as the mentor, the mentoring program, right? If you been in here, you know how a tool works, you are required to be a mentor to be considered certified at it. You know, if you want free access to it, you better believe that if you know at lunch, someone who's younger than you is interested in learning how to do it, you should take five minutes to teach them. Um, and I think this circles back a lot to what you're saying about who is the audience as well. You know, when when the audience um, for assessment or the audience for, for making something is only the adult or the teacher. Um, making things is, is risky, you, you really put yourself out into the world when you create something, you know? like you, Whether you write a story or you create something you're not sure is going to work, it's a really risky feeling. And, and how many of us are going to take that risk for a, like a single person who we may or may not have a connection to? And when we have these uh, networks of children um, teaching children, they have these really immediate role models, right? Um, and they can go to a role model that, that matters to them. So we have this big, open, diverse learning community um, that's connected but completely analog. It's in the room, you know, it's wonderful.
1: Well, you know, I, I think um, this theme of agency that I mentioned before for the individual is very powerful. But when when you can empower the whole community, you know, the community in the classroom or the, the community through the social network to to teach each other I think that's a that's a, a whole level of agency in which we're learning you're not just required to absorb what they're they're throwing at you, but sometimes you know more than the teacher and you can be the teacher. And I think that's an, a really important shift. I think that the, the technology has enabled that. The 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 idea, the the pedagogy is not new but it's not something that's really been prevalent but when you you're talking about making it's it's not uncommon that there is a 10 11 or 12 year old who's much more fluent than the teacher in a a particular aspect of what you're doing and it it poses i think a, a, an important and interesting challenge to the teacher because it is scary when you are faced with admitting what you don't know and, and it's scary for everybody to go into territory where you can fail. I mean we're not really set up for that in the classroom where you're supposed to succeed and that's, you know, you mentioned play. Um, if, if there's no possibility of failure, is it play?
2: Failure doesn't have to be uh, terrifying, right? Like if anyone's learned how to play basketball, you're gonna fail more often than you're gonna succeed um, when you're learning. And so but it's still fun to play basketball. Like people don't stop. So uh, there's sort of the freedom of failure when you're not being examined, right? If no one's timing you and no one's writing everything down and it's gonna determine, you know, your next step in life, like literally, <laughs> then if it's free of assessment and, and that judgment, then it is then failure is just the normal feedback system of learning and it's 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 blissful and fun too.
3: I think that failure often gets talked a lot about in terms of student learning, but I think it gets talked about less in terms of teacher learning, and it, particularly on the college level where it's a typically they're very kind of siloed kind of institutions. Um, and not taking a risk of kind of working with somebody that's outside of your specific domain of knowledge. And that's where all the really interesting things happen. That's where the low-hanging fruit is creatively in a, lot of, a lot of times. And I think that, um, you know, I have a background in design. I, I like to think of designers as, yes we're specialists in design but we're also generalists in, in the sense that we we synthesize a lot of different information we try to bring those things together in meaningful ways and I think that you know it, we we hear this a lot that failure is important for students and I think that that is it's great that that's that's more a part of kinda of the thinking and the, the pedagogy but I also think that we've done um not as good of a job in, in, in terms of getting teachers to be take take risks. I mean, what Krista was saying is really great. You know, she's like like, we don't all have the answers things. We don't know how to do all these things. And with technology moving so fast, we have to constantly be teaching ourselves. But fortunately for us, we, we have these really smart people that we're around, these the students and, and other teachers that we can draw on this knowledge. And if we kind of reframe it as, you know, I guess the, the cliché is, you know, the, the guide on the side versus the sage on the stage. You know, if we can kind of all say we have something to contribute, we all have something to learn, that's, um, that's a force multiplier that really allows us to kind of do the kinds of complex design or making projects that you know maybe weren't even possible a few years ago and I, I think that that's that's really exciting to see.
2: I want to add to that and that um, what's bizarre about sort of like the role of the maker education kind of um, guru at any school or even the tech specialist at school. Because school is set up in that hierarchy where the teacher knows the answers, so the kids have to you know, value what the teacher values, um, whenever we have these experts at our schools, they become that adult teacher teacher <laughs> and they're expected to have all the answers, they're expected to go in and, and facilitate all these things. Um, and I, just, I, I don't have the bandwidth for that kind of amount of knowledge, nor do I think it's really serving a community to have one person be in charge of that kind of knowledge. Um, so one of the ways I've tried to sort of get around that is that uh, when we I get to do a couple of um, I facilitate a couple of the faculty meetings, and rather than run a activity that we all do and I get to lead it, I invite everyone in our community who has something to teach. You know, the art teacher teaches a basic sketching class. Our ceramics teacher does a you know a, a ceramics or a whittling class, um, and we have parents come on. A parent who does welding over and over again. He loves it. And uh, I had a student come in and teach our faculty how to use Scratch because we happen to be really good at Scratch. So, you know, bringing in all of those people's um, expertise and passions is another way to keep reinforcing that message to the adults as well as, you know, the children that you guys serve.
1: I like that, that metaphor of the force multiplier. I think. We're, we're, we're so used to learning is about the individual knowledge and every once in a while there's some collaborative work that shows that um, a group can, can produce things that an individual can't. And I think it's just kind of part of Maker Ed is there's always going to be people who are going to zoom ahead and recognizing those people and having them help out is just is i think i don't know part of the part of the emerging culture i mean it's a pretty it's a new culture in the sense of bringing it into schools
3: it it'll be really interesting to speculate about kind of how this will change our economy and how we think about how we create meaning and value in the future and you start to see that already changing a little bit this is another part of the conversation that I don't think it's talked about enough you know it's like how to actually translate you know steam and stem and maker movement and all and design thinking and all these things into the jobs that these students are going to actually move into and in, in throughout their their professional lives and and Giving empowering them with a sense, an entrepreneurial spirit, a, a way of kind of thinking about um, creative problem solving and contextualizing things. I mean, this kind of goes back to the the question we started with about this distinction between um, design and making, and the how and the why. The why is contextual. The why is kind of how do I make um, how do I make a living doing this? How does it benefit society? How does it satisfy my own creative needs? All these kinds of questions, I think, um, are real are really important, and and it's you know, we are in this kind of moment of transition and it will be interesting to kind of see um, how the students that are, you know, are in these some of these high school classes today will go on and start businesses or I, I don't know why, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating to kind of think about that.
1: We've got, um, you know, a few minutes left, um, Denise, Cody, certainly we've, this has been a pretty fast moving conversation. and. I want to give you an opportunity to, to jump in on something that may have gone by a little, a little while ago. Uh,
4: I was gonna, <clears throat> sorry, speak a little bit more um, about like the social media aspect and kind of what Ian was saying. Like, what, how do we derive value in the future? It would be really interesting. Um, and, you know, I think you know the whole idea of connected learning is this kind of communal learning, right? In some kind of way, however we parse that out. But the social media aspect, the social aspect of it is going to be really, really important, I think. Because we've seen, certainly in the last 10 years or so, you know, less than that, that um, we derive a lot more value from social worth and from social standing and from social, um, I guess, review. Like, just what do our peers think about things and what do they think about our work? Um, we derive a lot more value than that, you know. Like, Obviously, social media plays the biggest role in that. Um, so I think it'll be interesting seeing how that goes going forward. But, you know, this whole idea of of that traditional teacher-student dichotomy and that relationship, like, you know, we've been talking about it all this time, that it's been changing. Um, and I've always thought about that relationship as being a two-way street where, you know, the teacher learns a ton of stuff from the student. You know, te- good teachers do. Um, and that's why, again, the Tech Lab, I I really push my teens, the, pe- and the kids in there, to teach the other kids what they know, because not only are you sharing your knowledge with someone else and then you know teaching them something, but like you, you get so much out of that relationship yourself just by teaching them. Um, either it's just honing your own craft, your own skills. If it's getting new ideas, like we talked about, like communities and groups of people, just have better ideas. They just come up with more stuff. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be interested to see how how the social aspect.
1: well I, I think one of the, the the best um maybe signals or harbingers is, is something like instructables where you see that uh, well you know a lot of instagram is about look at look at my life and this is what i had for lunch and this is how how great things are on my vacation but i think with a lot of the the younger makers in particular it's about um look what i made and here's here's how to do it and um I, I just, I have a very strong feeling myself that peer learning and peer teaching is one of the the things that's emerging from a number of different, from social media but also from from M- Maker Ed. It's it's um, really I think become part of the culture if you're 14 years old you know that you can go to YouTube to learn how to do things and I, and I think a certain number of people when they learn how to do something, are are moved to share it, not just leave it to the professional teachers.
2: I want to go back to the sort of jobs question and and how this translates to jobs. You guys are uh, familiar with Paolo Like his, he likes to say like, well, if 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 when cupcakes became like really hot in New York, and then every town had to have a like a, a cupcake shop. Um, and if the industry starts to center around making cupcakes, do we require all kids to take cake decorating as sort of like our curriculum? Um, I think what what the entrepreneurial spirit you were talking about, what's so important about that is that um, yes, you can translate that into a job if you're clever enough and you know the resources are available to you. And um, but I think what it really does is it, it you know it, it teaches people of any age, you know, because you can become an entrepreneur at any age, that you don't just actively Really accept what's been handed to you, right? You're like, oh well, there's you know, being a lawyer, there's being a teacher. This is these are the jobs that are available to you. Which one do you want to pick? You know, and I think we get that kind of mentality from consumerism. Like, here are your options. Do you want red or blue? Blah 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 blah. Are you happy now? Okay, great. No, throw it away. Get a new one. So. I think what entrepreneurialism teaches us is that we are not passively taking in what's around us. We're saying, well, something doesn't exist and I really want it, how am I going to create it? So it's, it's making that mind shift that I think is going to get yeah, them to be successful I, I think, no matter what.
3: I think that that's that's right on. And I also think that it's this process of creating hybrid identities and not thinking about, hey, I'm the cupcake maker and that's what I'm going to be for the next 40, 50, year, 50 years of my life, right? It's that I'm going to be all these different things and I'm going to have to learn from other people to kind of think about how I'm going to integrate these different identities together to kind of think about it was what I was saying before about the generalists and the specialists. You know, you have to be both to some degree. But really being able to kind of synthesize different ideas in, in different perspectives is is crucial to this kind of this kind of creative process,
1: I think. Yeah, so I uh, so agree. Um, it's the top of the hour almost. So thanks for a great conversation. Um, obviously we could go on. Um, so this wraps up the second webinar of our January uh, series on maker educators. Uh, please feel free to keep the energy going on Twitter using the hashtag #ConnectedLearning. Um, there will also be uh, pretty soon a full video recording available uh, immediately on ConnectedLearning.tv and and um, and other curated content on on the webpage around. Uh, today's session, and uh, I certainly will share it out on social media, and I encourage others to uh, as well. If you found this conversation helpful, please share it with your networks. And if you'd like to know more about upcoming uh, conversations from Connected Learning TV, which is now produced by the National Writing Project Educator Innovator, please visit educatorinnovator.org and sign up for the email newsletter. So join me next week at the same time, Thursday, uh, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. uh, Eastern, for a conversation um, on getting started with making learning. So um, thanks again, everyone. It's been fabulous. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Howard. Thanks, Howard. Thank you.